This episode is brought to you by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants. If you run a business or nonprofit working to make the world a better place, then visit wemakehay.com to see how Haymakers can help. This episode is also sponsored by RuralOrganizing.org. RuralOrganizing.org has been equipping and empowering rural changemakers since 2012. Visit RuralOrganizing.org for more information. People need a chance to connect with one another, and the more space you allow for that, even if it feels uncomfortable, the more connected they're going to be, but not just to each other, but to who you are, to your organization, to your cause. On today's episode of Flyover Folk, we discuss how digital organizing can lead to offline actions. Our guest today is sociologist Susan Croker, a longtime leader in the women's movement in South Dakota and PhD student at South Dakota State University. Her research explores how digital relationships can lead to social change. I'm Matt Hildreth, and you're listening to Flyover Folk, exploring rural progressive arts, culture, and politics. Just, just to start... Um... Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how, how you grew up, where you grew up, and, and where you're living now? Sure. I'm currently living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I actually only grew up 30 miles away from here. Uh, my parents live near Inwood, Iowa. Uh, it's the very northwest corner of the state. It's an extremely conservative part of the state. Um, they are sheep farmers. They are very much a blue-collar family. I'm the oldest of four kids and um, moved away for a while. I got my bachelor's and master's degree on the eastern side of Iowa, uh, which was a little bit different, Um, and then moved to Montana for a while and then have lived back in Sioux Falls for about 10 years. So I've always lived, for the most part, in more red areas, definitely more rural areas of the country. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? I'm curious about, you know, growing up in Inwood, which is a, you know, uh, a small town and your parents, were, your, were, were as you were growing up, were your parents sheep farmers? They were. And so my parents were, I was also lucky in that I consider it lucky anyway, in that I grew up in a blue household. So my parents are both registered Democrats. I'd consider them blue dogs. Um, they align progressively on most issues. Um, social and economic. And and so that's the house I grew up in. I actually personally evolved uh, politically. In college, I was much more conservative. And then as I got out into the world and started doing work as a therapist, I realized that that just didn't fit in with what I actually believed about the world. And so now my political beliefs align much more strongly with my parents. But it's interesting watching my parents Um, in my hometown because it is a very conservative community Um, and the school I grew up in. It's a school in the middle of a cornfield and houses kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, I graduated with 80 students and uh, by and large, the majority of the school was very conservative in nature. And so I watched my parents um, hold steady to their beliefs Definitely. And they were very active churchgoers as well and involved in their community. And you know, seen, to this day, they are seen as leaders. They're both, they help run the uh, museum locally. Um, but I saw them also um, be very careful and guarded about their expression of those beliefs and, um, and, and do some tiptoeing in order to and to have some power. So I, I watched that play out. Um, and that was somewhat reflected in the conversations in our household where we didn't have a lot of really open and honest conversations uh, about politics until I was much older. So, yeah, so I'm, been... I'm, 
I'm wondering how that, like, how, uh, you know, just personally, how you, how you manage that. Like, uh, anybody that's lived in a small town, especially, you know, a town with less than a thousand people, um, you know, I think it was Tip O'Neill that always said all politics is, uh, is local and in rural communities, it's, it's personal. <laughs> like, it's literally like <laughs> everybody knows everybody. So, how how did that you know how did you kind of think about that going from kind of you know being a little bit more quiet uh sort of more of a traditional i think rural setting to then you know being involved in uh, the women's rights movement and 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 working with NARAL and 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 you know kind of being a vocal leader that's been a that's funny because i haven't really thought about it a lot but it's been an evolution for me i you know, I took that that way of you know, looking at the world politically into my adult life. And so for much of college and even after college and as I even got started within the movement, I tend to hold my cards pretty close to my chest. And I don't um, I haven't been as outspoken in the past about my political beliefs, um, even though I've always I think even since I was a child, I consider myself part of the women's movement. Um and so jumping into that progressive world in such a profound way, like really being the face of abortion politics in South Dakota was uh, a jolt to say the least. I, um, I had to very quickly uh, put away any <laughs> concerns I had about my name associated with that, about um, any naysayers, about um, and how I would have normally handled that in, uh, you know, a town of a thousand people. And, and it was a, it was really, it was a quick learning process. Um, but also a really good one. It, it really pushed me out into the open. And, uh, the crazy thing is that when I started being more vocal about my beliefs, when I started giving community talks about abortion politics in South Dakota, when I started, you know, base building here, I realized that nobody really cares um, that it wasn't being the face of this in a red state wasn't really going to be that harmful to me. I even I remember going to coffee, particularly one coffee with a gentleman who was very concerned after I started working uh, with NARAL specifically and said, you know, that you will never be able to run for office in South Dakota. And my initial reaction was, that's fine. I never planned to anyway. But uh, I, I was shocked at, at how concerned he was for me because until that point, and I'd been doing this for a while, I had had no, there were no real repercussions for me. Um, I hadn't, besides a few, you know, like letters written to the office that were threatening in nature, um, which I know people experience all over the country. It's not just happening in red states when you work in abortion politics. But beyond that, it hadn't scorched my reputation within the community. Uh, the people who I was connected with before the social capital that I had been able to build as a professional in the community didn't go away. Um, and so that obviously gave me more uh, impetus, more confidence to move forward and and um, be even louder and, and more involved. Yeah, and you mentioned the the base building. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of uh, of um, you know building a community around your cause to sort of keep you going and, and keep you encouraged? Sure, it's important anywhere, but in a state. So the interesting thing about South Dakota and abortion politics is that they're a 
polling and also past ballot initiatives have shown that the majority of the public in South Dakota does support abortion rights. And, and when you ask for a public support, however, it becomes much more difficult because of that, um, you know, that culture, that rural culture that I talked about with my parents, where you don't speak outwardly about these issues, especially such a divisive issue. And so then base building in South Dakota becomes a little bit tricky um, around an issue like this. And so what we decided to do and what was really successful for us was to do a door-to-door -door canvas on abortion rights. And so we did that last summer for the very first time and it was terrifying, but uh, we hired canvassers. We had a, a nationwide conference here actually where NARAL brought in affiliates from around the country and we held a canvas here for an entire weekend and then we extended that canvas for six weeks longer where we literally went door to door and knocked on people's doors and asked them, it was a fundraising canvas partly, but also asked them to sign on as members of NARAL. And so what we did was we took that conversation into people's homes where they didn't have to worry about being like outwardly associated with the cause, where they didn't have to worry about what their neighbors were thinking and seeing. And we were really successful. Uh, we saw numbers that were on par with canvassing numbers in really progressive states. Uh, we were able to really quickly with a, just a very few staff build uh, a base that we hadn't seen in a while here in South Dakota. And, and so that was really encouraging uh, to know that there is support here for this. And I think it was also eye-opening to some degree to both us and to our national organization, um, because until then we had really been seen as a lost cause and and so they said, wait a second, there's a lot of support in these states. We just aren't reaching them the right way. And so we were able to do that. And it was it was it was really incredible. Um, and I think a lot of some of the success we've seen now regarding our, our growth within the women's movement here has to do with some of that groundwork that's been done over the last few years. Yeah, that's a that's actually like exactly the kind of stuff that we're you know wanting to figure out with with rural organizing and and flyover folk is just um, it's it's kind of the difference between um, you know the the support that people are seeing versus the the support that exists. I mean, I think you, right. you said it perfectly. It's like once you sort of change the tactic, or once you sort of uh, engaged on the values. Um, it's 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 similar to what people would be seeing in other communities. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just that the, the the culture is different, and so if your culture doesn't match up, you know, like it's almost like right. you have to have like a, a rural cult, uh, cultural comp competency trainings or whatever, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I, and you I, have to I, change the way you think about it, definitely. Yeah, and I'm interested because you're saying uh, Nayral, you had a you had a national conference. Was that in South Dakota? It was. It was here in Sioux Falls. It was last June. It wasn't a huge conference by any means. Um, we had several dozen advocates here. Uh, but again, I think the big takeaway was that we had a lot of people here from really blue states who, again, had assumed uh, that this is a completely red area. There's not a lot of headway to be made here. Um, we can't expect a lot. And then we're surprised. Um, in both regards, both with the number of people who signed on with us, but then also the amount of fundraising we were able to do when we did that door-to-door -door piece. 
Yeah, that is, I think that's, I think, you know, for anybody that's like a rural organizer listening to this, they would be so jealous <laughs> of that mm-hmm. investment, of, of that investment, because, you know, for, for anybody that's looking to engage in rural communities and not being from a rural community, like the, and Sioux Falls, you know, by no means for, for most of our listeners would be considered rural, but South Dakota is, and, um, and for people to, you know, put their conferences in red states or, you know, in, in, in battleground states, you know, rather mm-hmm. than the, the Los Angeles, New York, Chicago sort of situations. I think that, that alone is even radical. I know sometimes like Netroots Nation and, and, if, and a few other progressive conferences do kind of get out into the Rust Belt a little bit, but, um, yep. but, but just having people there, I think helps, um, kind of both ways for that, uh, you know, for, for people in the red States to kind of see how it's done, but, but also for, you know, people coming in to, to sort of understand that the cultural differences. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also interested because, um, on our, on our Facebook group, um, we've seen a, a, a lot of, uh, people were posting photos, um, from their rural women's marches. And I think that was a real highlight for me. Um, you know, I think there was like Longview, Minnesota, which is a town of like 156 people. And they had like 65 people turn out. So they had 50% of the town, which is amazing. Um, which I think technically would have to, I guess, depending on how you cut it, could be like all the women, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, and like Eagle Butte, South Dakota, I mean, and, I, and I'm just curious, like what happened here? I know you have, you know, you're, you're kind of, um, working on your, your PhD and, and, and you're kind of an expert on social media and social movement. So from just, you know, from that perspective, why was this so different? And, um, and, and, and how did they get it out of the city centers into the rural communities? Wow. Well, I can, I can speak to that from a few different perspectives. So I think from a, a more academic perspective, in terms of, of converting, and my my research has looked a lot at converting online activism or slacktivism, however you want to phrase it, to offline mobilization. So how much of this can we, you know, see going on online, you know, encouraging people to sign, move on petitions or you know, whatever it is, participate in Pantsuit Nation, that sort of thing. And then take that and try to turn it into something that is more impactful within our existing system, right? Like, because right now we, voting isn't online yet, unfortunately. We'll get there. But we, we have to find a way to convert what's that engagement piece that's happening online and that happened right after the election into offline mobilization. And I think that what worked here is that just the, the amount of tension that's happening between these opposing forces in terms of the obvious, you know, like caused by the, the Trump election and also these, you know, these women who are, are worried and frightened and aren't sure what's happening next in their world. And um, that was enough of an impetus to just, push this offline. And, and so we saw this happening in communities across the United States. Um, there was also, I think, a coordinated effort to do so, um, though it was chaotic, to be sure. Uh, there was still both this core group uh, out of D.C. 
we're coordinating this huge event and like we knew this needed to happen. But then also we see these leaders stepping up in rural communities. And I saw that happen somewhat organically in South Dakota. Um, like the other perspective I have is that I was kind of the force behind getting the march going here locally in Sioux Falls. Uh, and to some degree, the marches across the state. Um, but it was amazing to me because all I all I really did was called a, a young woman here in Sioux Falls who I knew would be a really good person to lead the effort here and said, you need to do this. Somebody has to step up. I need you to do it. And she said, okay, I'll do it. And she instantly had a committee. They were off to the races. And then it just blew up. I mean, it just expanded exponentially. And part of that had to do with, with her stepping up and, and agreeing to do this. But part of that was just all of the force uh, behind this movement right now, uh, where we're seeing numbers and all, I mean, we're, there were five marches that I know of in South Dakota that um, every single one of them had a turnout that was far greater than expected, which was really amazing to see. Yeah. So, so that's, I think, an important thing to remember is is that it's sort of like that there's there there's sort of people behind the online energy, and I think people kind of forget it. Like it was it wasn't just that people were connecting on their own to 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 something online. It was that people like you, like organizers, uh, were also connecting, and I think. That's something that I'm really interested in is is the the organizers that are connecting as much as sort of the individuals because I think what I've seen is that's where there's real power is that you know if you're talking to organizers across the state and then those organizers are sort of reaching into their own networks um, mm -hmm. it, it kind of spider webs out instead of being like this you know. I don't know, like a spoke of a wheel where everything connects to the center. It's like everything's sort of connecting to itself. And there's like pods of people that are then connecting to other pods. I think that that's maybe oh, a absolutely. I, Yeah, I, we're talking network theory here now. Like, well, and it's the, the idea that the organizers have the training and um, the strategic vision to be able to identify those moments that they're seeing take place online and then grab those moments and say, let's create something, you know, in real life here. Let's, let's build a community here that exists offline. Yeah. So that, yeah, I, I think that that's, I think that that's really interesting. And I think that that's sometimes where I get frustrated is like, um, you know, doing a lot of digital organizing. Um, people are always saying, Oh, let's do that. You remember that ALS ice bucket challenge? Like, I just, I, I just feel like that, like people forget how much that was promoted in the press by the, you know, the ALS foundations and the fact that it was sort of prime the you know, they primed the pump, um, and sort of kept that moving through like an earned media strategy in, in addition to the digital strategy. And I think there's a fundamental different approach to that, which is sort of like viral versus, uh, interconnectedness of of networks and so and and so mm -hmm. there's like the the technology is just sort of attaching itself onto like what social networks used to mean you know before facebook or myspace or whatever where you know it was like bowling leagues or whatever right the latter is much more intentional we're talking about embeddedness of ties here right where the you know the viral nature of the ice bucket challenge creates really loose ties and it's very widespread and obviously successful you know, according to what it needed to do. 
but sustainable is another question. Uh, like obviously not. Whereas my hope is that with this current movement that we're seeing online, particularly with the women's movement and the behaviors that we're then transferring offline, we're creating more of those strong ties, those embedded ties where people will come back to this or stay involved with this. Yeah. So like if you had maybe, you know, three pieces of advice for, um, you know, organizers in rural communities around the women's movement, what would it be, especially toward that sustainability that you're talking about? Uh, Number one would be to transfer the energy offline whenever possible. I've found uh, with this new organization that we've established here, LEAD, that we've uh, done as much of that as possible. We've used our online community, we have an online community now, our Facebook group, rather, of 1,500 members, which in South Dakota, 1,500 progressive men and women together, mostly women, is amazing. Uh, and I think the reason we've continued to grow since the election well, it's partly, <laughs> partly energized by the events since the election, but it's also the fact that we very quickly transferred the momentum that was building online and transferred it. We took it offline. And so we started holding community meetings. We started holding trainings. We gave them an opportunity to connect with one another and then also gave them information with which to mobilize. And I think that was important, um, taking it offline. The second piece is related to that, like I just said, and that is, give people the chance to build a community. Don't just assume like I've done in the past in my organizing that they just need information and then they will be okay and they will be able to do whatever they need to do. People need a chance to connect with one another and the more space you allow for that, even if it feels uncomfortable, the more connected they're going to be, not just to each other, but to who you are, to your organization, to your cause. And I've, I've seen that too with LEAD where we hold community meetings and a lot of our community meetings are, let's just talk about what's going on. Um, a lot of it is also encouraging baby steps toward mobilization, but we're also just every week we start with a question, why are you here? And women really, in our group anyway, really revel in that and and come for that question so that they have a chance to connect with one another to be heard to be around like-minded people which i've heard over and over again particularly in south dakota and red state that like i felt so alone until now um that's been that's been huge for people and so we've held we had a happy hour two nights ago we had 70 people show up that is in our world that's crazy yeah that's crazy Uh, and like, I didn't know a single person there. They wow. were all new. This is, what? it's, I don't even know what to, I'm like overwhelmed with it. <laughs> but where did they come from? I'm curious. This time they came from the March. So we had about 3,400 people show up at the March in Sioux Falls. And they, uh, afterwards on the March event page, uh, they had promoted our group lead and requested that people come to the happy hour if they wanted to continue working. And so that's what happened is that we had standing room only crowd wow. after the March and people are engaged and ready to do some work. I'm trying to think the other thing that I've learned as I've started this process and I'm starting a brand new organization that's really just growing like wildfire um, is to be patient with the process 
and to allow to some organic growth. I've tried to not be as proactive as I would have been in the past in terms of when I've run organizations or been in administration and you know everything's so bureaucratic and, and highly structured. I've intentionally allowed this to grow and I've watched it grow online, which that's the part that on like the Facebook group has served that's been so amazing is to, I can watch this happen in real time. Like what are the needs of the group? Uh, what are the interests of the group? What what is What are the actions the group wants to take? And then we can be responsive, albeit quickly, but we can be responsive to the group's needs in our structural organizing. So for instance, this week, there's a lot of chaos on our group in terms of um, people expressing angst over not knowing which issue to be involved with. There's so much happening. There's so much, you know, top down or stuff coming through um, in terms of several issues, you know, abortion, immigration, EPA, like badlands, yeah. <laughs> all sorts of things happening this week. Yeah. And people don't know how to plug it in because it feels so overwhelming. And yeah. so, so my steering committee can watch this play out in the Facebook page. And so my request to my steering committee today was, how can we best respond to the needs of the group this week? My suggestion is we hold a community meeting or a training saying, here's how you focus. Here's how we can pick an issue. And then here are the steps you need to take to be involved with this issue. Yeah. Like this is really so help them with that exercise and then go. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because like not to knock move on, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of move on, but like, I remember during the Occupy Wall Street stuff, I was actually living right outside of Sioux Falls. Um, and I went to the like chapter um, meeting there and mm -hmm. it was it was really interesting i mean it was great right like they had it was sort of like a training and they had some movies about you know or you know digital presentations about the history of the civil rights and what it means to do civil disobedience and all that stuff and then it just kind of died um and it's weird because obviously like donald trump throws in a whole new I don't know, motivation or sort of chaos to res or um, crisis to respond to. But it was it's the same people, you know, that are, you know, coming. Uh, you're more involved, obviously. So that, you know, that kind of makes a difference. But in theory, it's you know, it really is the same people that this the event I went to was only a couple of years ago. Um, but it's just so interesting how the conditions and sort of local leadership and a focus on sustainability really kind of can have a like a bigger impact and it, and, and, it, and in theory you're having the same event but 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 what's happening kind of behind the scenes you know in terms of the organizing it's just fundamentally different it's really interesting to kind of compare those two events mm -hmm. so well anyway so I do, I do have a few more questions on um, you know just on that kind of local perspective I'm sure. a question I've been asking everybody since the election is uh, why do and I'm not going to say Democrats because um, sometimes I'm not sure if I'm a Democrat. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm more worried about helping people than party politics. But right. uh, but progressives is, is sometimes a loaded term as well. But so why let maybe we'll say it that way. Like, why do people that care so much about, um, you know, justice and equality um, why do they suck so much at re reaching rural communities? <laughs> I uh, 
there's a disconnect. I've thought about this a lot and I don't have the right answer yet. There's a disconnect between so much of the talk around identity that's associated, I think, with the progressive movement and the needs of people in rural communities. I, I don't think that it's that that it's, it's almost a, a translation issue, I think, <laughs> in that it's not that people in rural communities don't care about these issues um, or are you know blind to them by any means. It's that we're not speaking in their language. Um, and, and part of that involves speaking to them in their world. Because I think so many of these people, I, I talked to even my family since the election and talking about the things that um, from my very conservative brothers, uh, progressives care about have nothing to do with me. Um, when that is absolutely not the case, uh, my brother is employed as a, a head farmhand at a facility that uh, employs several immigrants. He, um, my my youngest brother's wife is a teacher in our school system here. Um, these, uh, the issues we care about are very much impactful to their lives that way. And, and so I think part of it has to do with the framing of issues and being intentional with uh, framing. And again, consideration of culture within that framing. So not assuming that the way we frame things in a more urban area or issues surrounding justice um, or any you know economic issue or identity-based issue uh, is going to translate to to more rural culture, uh, particularly rural culture in a red state. So we, I don't have the answer yet. I, I know that economic framing helps um, whenever possible, uh, but I, I think I think that's part of the issue. Yeah. I think uh, there, there's also this interesting piece here when we consider party. Um, I don't know, <laughs> like a couple things, like in terms of like the party here has just been so beat up over the years uh, that people have started to distance themselves because of that issue. Um, we don't want to be associated because like this party does not do well and that's a good enough reason for them. Yeah, um, like, that's part of the problem. Like, yeah. And that has to do with a number of things, staffing and lack of resources and yeah, inability to really base build effectively <laughs> i think there's a you know there's a snowball effect where the less people want to be associated obviously it becomes more difficult to recruit those yeah it's almost like the um dnc dccc and and others in dc should uh open up their internship programs to red states <laughs> Because if you're a if you're right. if you're a twenty year old in college in South Dakota, who do you you know you're a Democrat? Who do you intern for? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So okay, last question before I let you go is you know you know what gives you hope? Where are you seeing um, positive you know positive growth or um, you know what, what what's working? Uh, the thing I'm most excited about is uh, at, at each of the meetings that we've held so far, we've asked how many of you plan to run for office and about a third of the room has raised their hands. And so what's working <laughs> is that not only are women engaged uh, with not only our organization, but all of these issues where we're seeing a lot more political engagement. And actually we're seeing some of the fruits of that labor reflected during our legislative session, which is very interesting to watch. 
uh, but they're being engaged in really high-level ways in, in terms of wanting to run for office. And so that that excites me to see that. Um, and so then in my mind, like the first thing we do is light the fire here, and then we can start to implement some strategy. Like if you, you know, if you have this base of people who want to be involved on that level, great. Now let's start to, you know, give them tools. Let's start to hold trainings. Let's start to identify those people who are really going to be good fits for this. Uh, and so that seems to be working. And in terms of the work I've been doing here in South Dakota, that's what I'm most excited about is a slate of women candidates uh, in 2018 <laughs> who are ready to make some change. Uh, and so that's I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we're able to keep these women engaged for the next year and a half. I don't think it's going to be much of a challenge. I think I'll have some help um, coming out of D.C., but... <laughs> Uh, but that's that's the growth that I'm seeing and that I'm really encouraged by. Yeah, that's that's that that is amazing. I mean, if you're able to crack that code on uh, online engagement through a march to uh, running for office, which it sounds like you're you're pretty dang close to figuring that out. Uh, that is a model that needs to be replicated across the country. So um, I hope you kind of keep us up to date on on your work and let us know how it goes because um i think you've sort of found the holy grail in all of this <laughs> it's really really ex exciting to see what you're doing yeah thank you thank you i'm i'm excited to keep moving well thanks for joining us uh today i i, I do appreciate you uh you know taking the time to chat and letting us know uh what you're working on and giving us some context for the online actions that we've been seeing absolutely matt it was good to talk to you I'm Matt Hildreth, and you've been listening to Flyover Folk, brought to you by Haymakers, Community Engagement Consultants, and RuralOrganizing.org. Our music today comes from Brutal Bear, based out of Wichita, Kansas. For more information about them and our guest today, visit flyoverfolk.com. 